The reading this morning is from the book of 1 John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Anna. What we are up to around here in the weeks leading up to Lent is we're taking a, a, a little chunk of time and we're, we're talking about what the Bible says about the Bible. What does the Bible say about itself? And uh, last week we, we started this and uh, we, we discovered that Scripture says that it is, uh, it's God's self-disclosure. It's God using words to reveal to us who he is like, uh, who he is and what he is like, in other words. And if you were here last week, or maybe you just hear me saying that right now, and you're thinking, but that sounds like circular reasoning. You're saying that I should believe that the Bible is God's word because the Bible tells me it's God's word. That's not a good reason to believe anything. Fair. That's what I want to try to lean into and figure out uh, this morning. But before we do that, here's how I want to set this up. Um, I don't know if you've seen the TV show the Office, it's, um, it's really good. If you haven't seen it yet, you should see it. Um, but this, uh, this show, at one point, there's a, the, the new standing manager, uh, is a guy named Andy, and he wants to throw a garden party for his staff. And he wants to throw this garden party at Schrute Farms, which is a farm, it's a bed and breakfast that's owned by one of the other employees named Dwight Schrute. And uh, Dwight really wants this garden party to go well, because if it goes well, he can expand his clientele. And so he's really anxious about doing this garden party well. And so he buys the one, there's one copy of this book online. It's called The Ultimate Guide to Throwing Garden Parties. And he purchases this book, and he reads it and follows it and, and starts to put it into practice. So when the garden party happens, uh, as the book says, when every guest arrives, he loudly announces their names to let the crowd know that the new guest has arrived. That's what the book told him to do. He, um, in, in the middle of the party, him and the, uh, the, the, the party staff do this weird dance in the middle to, as a reenactment of, uh, of the Lord's Supper in the middle of this, because that's what the book says is what you do at garden parties. At the end, he does this big closing ceremonies with fire and the, out in the field and everything. He's doing all these ridiculous things, but what he doesn't know is that that book was written by uh, one of his co-workers named Jim under a false name as a total prank, and Dwight doesn't know it. He's just he's reading this book. And he's following it scrupulously. He's doing all these ridiculous things. And yet, in the end, the book that he is so committed to was a fiction. It was written by, uh, you know, someone, you know, messing with him. Uh, as Christians, we don't just stake our parties and our reputations on the line 
for a book, for the book of the Bible. I mean, we, we, we stake everything on this thing. Everything that we believe, everything that we do is founded on this. And so here's the question. How do we know that this wasn't written by con artists? How do we know that this isn't a fiction? And how would we know? How can you even know? So that's what I want to try to lean into and answer this morning. Try to tackle uh, three big questions for us this morning. The questions are how, why, and who. Question one, how does anyone believe anything? Question two, why should you believe the Bible? And question three, who cares? I thought about this as a potential outline for how, why, who. How dare you? Why are you that way? And who do you think you are? But I decided to go with a nicer um, outline. So um, we're going to go with how does anybody believe anything? Uh, Why should you believe the Bible? And who cares? So first, how does anybody come to believe in anything? It's an important question. To get at that, let's look at this passage. Uh, 1 John is a letter. It was written by one of Jesus' disciples whose name was, wait for it, John. He writes this letter as a way, uh, and really these, these opening first, uh, these four verses at the top, he, he's telling you what he's up to in this letter. And here's what he's doing. He is simply reporting what he witnessed. That's it. That's what he's doing. He's reporting what he witnessed. Look at verse 1. It says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it. And then jump down to verse 3. He says, that which we have seen and heard. Here's what he's saying. God, who is the life, the one who is from the beginning, the one who stands outside of time, the one who's the maker of heaven and earth, this God has revealed himself in a way that was physical and tangible, and, and you could see him and touch him. And you see all that, all that sensory language we saw with our eyes, we touched, we heard with our ears. He's not saying, hey, here's why you should listen to me. Here's why you should believe me. It's because I had this private mystical, spiritual experience. And therefore, now I'm qualified to tell you something. He said, no, this was public. This was historic. He says, we, we saw this. We witnessed this. And then he's telling you what he witnessed. Look at uh, at verse um, 2. He says, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Jump down to verse 4. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. That's what the Bible is. It's people proclaiming and writing and reporting firsthand testimony, the stories of what they saw and experienced with their own eyes. And so here's the point. God has revealed himself to people, specifically apostles, and these, pos- these apostles wrote it down, reported it, and are announcing it to them, and they're announcing it to us. They're reporting what they saw. That's what the Bible is. It's testimony. Now, you may hear that and say, but how do you know they weren't lying? How do you know they weren't just making that stuff up? Why should you believe them? Again, fair question we're going to get to, but before I answer that question over here, 
I want you to think about how we know anything. How do you come to believe in anything? It is through believing testimony. That's how anyone comes to believe anything. All of us in here believe that the Revolutionary War happened. Maybe some of you don't, you conspiracy theorists out there. But for the bulk of us, we believe that the Revolutionary War happened. And yet, we weren't there. We didn't see it. We didn't experience it. Why do we believe that this thing happened? Because we believe the testimony of other people that told us. We believe teachers. We believe books. We've been to museums. We've seen artifacts. We listen to Hamilton. You know, we, we've, we've, we've experienced this stuff. We believe that this is true in something that we weren't there to experience ourselves firsthand because we're believing testimony. That's how we believe anything that has happened in the past. But it's not just stuff that's happened in the past. You know, this is how science works as well, right? We think science is uh, objective. It only deals with facts. It's not touched by bias. Wrong. All science is, is a part of tradition and, and testimony as well. Think about, um, think about how you responded to COVID. We were told, okay, there's this crazy bad virus out there. What do we do? How do we respond to it? Well, out of an abundance of caution, we did lots of different things. And some of us, uh, I would say, well, I would say maybe none of us in this room, uh, maybe one of y'all, I don't know, but the bulk of us were not in laboratories doing experiments and uh, we're looking at stuff under microscopes and we're handling beakers. What we were doing was reading articles on the internet and we were following Instagram people and we were listening to podcasts and watching YouTube videos. And so you had a group of people listening and following this group of testimony from these people saying this is how you should respond and you had this group of people responding to this group of people saying this is our testimony, this is how you should respond. You had two very different responses to COVID. And both people were throwing bricks at the others and saying, y'all are crazy, and y'all are stupid, and you're not following the science, and you're not following the science. But the reality is, you just had different people following different testimonies. That's how we come to believe in anything. So if you look at the Bible, and you say, okay, well, I can't believe the claims of the Bible because it's this testimony from these people that lived 2,000 years ago. I need something stronger than that. I need something more than that to believe it. Fine, but just know you're being inconsistent. Just know if you applied that same standard to everything else that you believe, you, you wouldn't know anything. The way that we come to know stuff is by believing the testimony of other people, which raises the million-dollar question, why in the world should we believe them then? Why believe the apostles? Why believe the, the reports in the Bible about what happened? How do we know they weren't lying? How, they, how do we know this even is their testimony? How, how do we know this wasn't written hundreds and hundreds of years after they lived, and it's just other people saying, hey, I'm John, and, I'm, and I saw this stuff, and you should believe it. How do we know? Well, to that question, let us turn. Question two, why should you believe the Bible? And um, here is where uh, I'm going to take a risk, and uh, this, this is going to pivot from sermon to lecture, or at least it's going to feel like it. We're gonna, it's going to feel a little teachy for the next few moments. So just bear with me and be kind, please. But I'm going to give you four reasons why I think you should believe the Bible. Four reasons why the Bible is trustworthy, it's reliable, it's authentic. Here's reason one. Uh, 
the timing is too early. The timing is too early. Here's what I mean. Lots of people have said, well, the Bible's a bunch of made-up stories. It was made up by the church as a way to, you know, it's propaganda. It's fake news to get people to believe this stuff because you get people to believe this stuff and they come in and you get resources and you get power. And so it's all driven by power. It's all fake news. It's not real. It's, it's propaganda by the church. The problem with that is the earliest gospel that we have, the earliest gospel that was written, even by the most critical scholars, people who don't believe in the Bible at all, would say it was the gospel of Mark, which was written 10 to 15 years after the death of Jesus. So you have somebody who wrote saying, here's what Jesus was doing. He went around saying this. He went around doing this and raising the dead and miracles, blah, blah, blah. And then this document was circulated in a very small, tight-knit, pre-internet world. Now, if this was all made up 15 years after the fact, people would still have been alive 15 years after the fact that would have said, hey, this is all made up. This is fabricated. I was there. You should not believe this. You can't get something off the ground in 15 years because everybody was around would have been around to contradict it. For example, if in 15 years from now, I published a book, came out with a bestseller called The Great Midtown Riot of 2024, and I talked about how on a fateful Sunday morning, January 14th, uh, a group of people that gathered together at Redeemer Presbyterian Church, they were so anxious about the impending snowmageddon. They were already worried, and then they were so offended by the pastor. They all got up mid-service mid and stormed out, just like Clayton's doing right now, storming out, and went across to Otherlands and burned it to the ground, and then a whole mob of them, just like a horde of zombies, they went down to Cooper Young, and they knocked over the, the Tacos and Ganas truck, and then just went into Cooper Young and looted and destroyed everything, and I published this book, and I'm going on the circuit to talk shows, and I'm selling millions of copies of this book. Fifteen years from now, you would have said, whoa, I was there. I was there that morning. None of that happened. Clayton left, but that was it. Nobody else, nobody else did anything. In other words, in 15 years, the, the timing is too early. If the stuff is just made up, there's, there's, it never would have gotten off the ground, but, but nobody stood up and contradicted it and said, hey, I was there and this never happened. So that's, the, that's reason number one. The timing's too early. Here's reason number two. The content is too counterproductive. Meaning, if you're just making stuff up, Jesus fed this many people, Jesus rose from the grave, Jesus, if you're just making stuff up, you wouldn't put in the Bible the kind of stuff that's in the Bible, because the kind of stuff that's in the Bible actually shoots you in the foot, if you're making it up. I'll give you, there's lots of examples I can give you, I'll give you one. All four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, say that the first witnesses to the resurrection, the first people who came upon the empty tomb and discovered it were women. If you're making this up, you would never have done that. You would never have put women to be your star witnesses. And that's because women in the first century were not taken seriously. They weren't even given, um, they weren't even given the, the dignity of being able to give testimony in a court of law. They, they were not seen as, as, as credible. In fact, I'll give you a, um, a real reference. There's a guy named Celsus who's a Greek philosopher. In the second century, he wrote this big diatribe attacking the, um, 
attacking Christianity. It's intellectually stupid. It doesn't make any sense. You can read his whole thing online, by the way. One of his arguments in this deal is the fact that Mary Magdalene was the star witness of the resurrection. And here's what he says, quote, in fact, before I read this, I'll give you a trigger warning. You're not going to like this. But here's what he said. How can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? Told you, <laughs> told you you wouldn't like it. But I read that to you because that gives you a window into how women were viewed in the first and second centuries. Not taken seriously. Hysterical, emotional. You can't trust women. If you're making up a story and trying to get people to believe it in that context, you would never have put that in there. The only reason why that's in there, the only reason why women are written as the key witnesses to the resurrection is because it happened. The content is too counterproductive. The timing is too early. Here's number three. The manuscript evidence is too supportive. And here's where I'm going to lose half of you because we're going to nerd out hard for a minute. The manuscript evidence is too supportive. Here's what I mean. Here's why that's important. Think about this. How many copies of the original biblical manuscripts do we have? The more you have, the, re the reason why that's important is because the more you have, the more you can compare them to each other to see where the problem is. If you only had two ancient copies of the Gospel of Matthew, for example, and one says Jesus fed a crowd of 5,000 people, and the other says Jesus fed a crowd of 500 people, well, you don't really know where the error is. You don't know which one's right, which one's wrong. But if you had 100 copies, and 99 say Jesus fed 5,000 people, and one said he fed 500 people, you know where the glitch is. You know which one has the typo. So how, do, how many New Testament documents do we have? Well, let's compare it to some other uh, resources. Caesar's Gaelic Wars is a document documenting Caesar's Gaelic Wars. And how many, how many ancient copies do we have of this document? Ten. And it's seen as historically reliable. You can go look it up. In fact, somebody came up to me after the last service and said, I had to translate that in Latin for one of my classes. And when, when Caesar was invading kind of the north and Sweden and Britain area, one of the things that he noticed was how everybody up there was so uncivilized and they're barbaric because they wore pants. Because we wear robes down here in you know, Rome or whatever. Up there they wore pants, those barbarians. That has nothing to do with anything. Just a fun little fact. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, 10 copies. Plato. You know, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, the philosophers. We have seven copies of Plato's writings. Ancient stuff. Seen as historically reliable, credible. How many copies do we have of the New Testament? 25,000. 25,000. Meaning, the standards that we use by historians to authenticate the reliability and the authenticity of documents. The New Testament is in its own league. It's insane how many we have. And here's another interesting question. How old are those manuscripts? And that's really important because think about this. If, if this is a timeline, and let's say you're, you're Mark over here and you're writing your gospel, Jesus did this and Jesus did that in the year 45 A.D., but the oldest copy that we have is from 900 A.D. That's about a thousand-year gap between here and there, 
a lot of changes could have taken place. That's a lot of telephone, if you've ever played telephone. Caesar's Gaelic Wars, how old is that document? Well, it was written in uh, 100 BC. The oldest one we have is 900 AD, literally 1,000 years between when they wrote it and the oldest copy that we have. Plato's writings, he wrote even further, further back. He's writing over here, 400 BC, whatever Plato wrote. And uh, the oldest one that we have of his, 900 AD, that's a 1,300-year gap. Historians say, that's reliable. He wrote that stuff. We can trust it. The Bible, New Testament, was written between the years 45 and 90 AD, somewhere in that time window, 45 and 90. The oldest manuscript that we have is from the Gospel of John, dated to 125 AD. 35-year gap. Same standards that historians use to authenticate uh, other historical documents. The, again, the Bible is in its own league. Now, you may hear all of that, and you say, but that still doesn't answer the question, how do you know they weren't lying? We have great manuscript evidence. What if it's great manuscript evidence of a fiction? Well, here's the last important and maybe the most important reason um, for why you should believe the Bible. Reason number four is because the eyewitnesses are too courageous. The eyewitnesses are too courageous. So let's just say the disciples made it up. They said, yeah, Jesus went into this town and he uh, healed this paralytic and got him to walk again. And he did all this crazy stuff. It was really cool. And then Jesus died, and then we all secretly went to the grave at night, and we stole his body, and then we showed up the next morning and said, oh, look, he's, he rose from the dead. The whole thing was a hoax. Let's just say that's what happened. Here's what history tells us. Not the Bible, but other historical documents tell us that all of Jesus' followers suffered and died because of their faith in Jesus. They were tortured. They, they were burned alive. They were fed to lions. They, they, were, they were mutilated. And you think, okay, if you're making this stuff up, surely one of them would have cracked at some point, right? If you're, if you're, about, if you're tied up to a stick and a um, big stake and um, you're about to be lit on fire and you know it's a lie, don't you think one of them would have said, okay, you got me. It's a joke. We made it all up. Don't burn me alive. But none of them did. None of them did. There's a French philosopher named Blaise Pascal who says this, quote, I believe those witnesses that get their throats cut. I would too. I mean, if you're willing to die, if you're willing to put your life on the line for this claim, maybe we should take you seriously. So, teachy time over lecture over. You can wake up again. Um, what does that mean? Put all that together. I think that shows you the Bible's trustworthy. Y you can believe it. You can trust it. It's authentic. It's reliable. But here's, here's the last big question, because you may be sitting there and you're thinking, oh my goodness, this guy's killing me with all this stuff. I, um, I chose a bad Sunday to show up. I knew I should have stayed in my pajamas. It was cold outside. This was painful. Um, who cares? Who cares? Why does any of this matter? Here's why you should care. Um, and really, here's, here's the big question. Why is it that God would reveal himself 
in the person of Jesus in, in such a physical, historical, tangible, real way. Here's why. Verse 3. So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. God reveals himself so that ultimately we would have fellowship with him and that we would have fellowship with one another. But our fellowship is with him. That, that's the point. That's why God reveals himself in, in the Bible. That's why he has these uh, apostles pass along their testimony. It's not so that we can win arguments. It's not so that we can uh, feel better about being right and beat up people who disagree with us. It's not so that we can be impressive with how much Bible trivia we know. God gives us the Bible so that we can be in fellowship with him, in joyful fellowship with him. If you look at verse 4, so that you might be reconciled to him, so that you might experience the joy and the wonder of the fact that the God of the universe, the, the most praiseworthy being in existence, loves you and came for you. And wasn't content to just be remote and silent, but speaks and came and, and, and he sent his son after you and bore the shame and the suffering of the cross for you and for your sake so that you would know in your heart of heart in a real, concrete, durable, substantive way, this is real. He really does love me like this. It's not a fairy tale. This is not just made up stuff. It's rooted in history. In fact, let's take it a step deeper. Uh, th this past week, I was listening to a podcast by one of my favorite comedians, a guy named Mike Berbiglia. And uh, he's interviewing another comedian on a show. This, this, uh, another comedian that I love is a friend of his, a guy named uh, Gary Goldman. And uh, so Mike and Gary are talking, and they're talking about the history of their friendship. They're saying, okay, remember when we met? We met 15 years ago at this comedy club in Los Angeles, and we really hit it off afterward. We figured out that our sensibilities really meshed, and uh, we traded numbers, and uh, we said, let's stay in touch. And then Mike is sharing on the podcast. He says, remember, I called you shortly after that. You didn't pick up, and I left a voicemail, and you never called me back. And I just always assumed, oh, you're busy, you're kind of, you got other things to do, you don't really want to be friends after all. And Gary sheds light on that moment. He says, no, I remember that. I remember when you called, and I remember you left that voicemail, and I remember thinking to myself, okay, Mike is just being nice. He's just doing this because he said he would. Uh, what in the world would this guy, who is kind of this rising star of, like, mega celebrity, why in the world would this guy want to have anything to do with me. And, and he said this, and, and I wrote it down word for word, the quote. I went back and listened to it and I wrote it down. Here's what he said. He said, I couldn't imagine anybody liking me other than that I was a really good comedian. And if I'm not a really good comedian, then they wouldn't want to spend any time with me. Now, when I heard that, exercising at the crock with my Airpo you know, AirPods on, listening to that, that pierced me because I resonate with that. I don't know if you do, that feeling of people don't like you unless you perform. I mean, that's probably one of the saddest of my core beliefs. 
is deep down, I have this fear, I have this feeling. People don't like you, Matt. They only like you if you're providing a product. They only like what you're offering them. And when I live out of that belief, it turns up my anxiety. It makes me um, fear conflict. I get terrified of um, criticism or failure or rejection because, you know, the, the pressure turns up. Because the pressure says, okay, you got to perform, you got to say the right thing, you got to do the right thing, you got to make people like you because if they don't like you, if you don't offer the product, they're not going to like you. Here's why the gospel is so wonderful because the gospel is this historical declaration that the God of the universe, who is the praiseworthy one, wants to spend time with you, wants to be with you for you, not the idealized you that we all have in our brains of, well, maybe, maybe the me when, I, when I've reached all of my quarterly goals or I hit all of my New Year's resolutions or when I finally get healthy. No, like the real you, the messy, insecure, wounded, struggling, sinful, screwed up you. That's the you that he wants to be in joyful fellowship with. When you know that and you believe that and you take that into your heart of hearts, that frees you to face rejection. People can reject you and you cannot be, you know, you won't be crumpled in the same sort of way because you know that the one person in the universe whose opinion really matters, you, you have his delight, you have his acceptance, you, you have his love, you have his favor. You take that into your heart of hearts and you can, you can finally face um, failure because you realize that your sense of self your identity is no longer connected to your, your performance, and so you can fail, you can be criticized, and, and it, it doesn't wreck you in the same way because your identity is, is not tied up with that anymore. You, you, can, you, you can fail in such a way that is so um, painful and shameful and public, and it not wreck you because you know in your heart of hearts there, there is an internal avalanche of unending love from the God of the universe who's just pouring love and favor and grace in over and over through his spirit. All of that and more is offered in the gospel of Jesus. That's why it is, it's, it is so crucial that it is historical, physical, reliable. You can bank everything on it. And so here's the question for you this morning and for me. Will we dare to believe it's true? Will you dare to believe that it's true for you? Will I dare to believe it's true for me? That the God of the universe loves us to such a degree that he would leave heaven and come for us to be in joyful fellowship with us. Will you dare to believe it? That's the invitation for you this morning. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart and all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Our Lord, our God, and our Redeemer. Father, I pray that you would help us to see that the gospel of grace and your very Son, it's more beautiful and more believable than we may realize. Give us faith that is um, supernatural. Give us confidence and who you are and what you have done. And I pray that this uh, faith and this confidence would only drive us to deeper love for you and deeper love for our neighbors. 
We pray all of this in the name of our King, the one who came for us, the Lord Jesus. Amen.